Hello and welcome, friends, family, and of course, enemies alike, to episode 135 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Now, this odd-numbered episode, we are continuing through The Adventure of the Sussex Vampire, a Sherlock Holmes mystery. And this is the final part of this mystery. Last week, we uncovered a mysterious occurrence with the mother of a child where she allegedly had bitten into its neck with her fangs, drawing blood. With her teeth, I should say. We don't know she has fangs. But uh, very suspicious. And as Sherlock was going through past cases, he uncovered other instances of vampire-like activities, which is quite alarming in early 20th century late 19th century Europe. So we are going under the auspice that the solution to this case is not that she is indeed a vampire, but there is something less than suspicious about her activities that hopefully will justify strange markings on children and erratic behavior. Uh, Let's just uh, read through this with an open mind and <laughs> hope that vampires do not exist in the real world, in the world that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was writing from. So, without further ado, The Adventure of the Sussex Vampire, Part 2, by... Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It was evening of a dull, foggy November day when, having left our bags at the Checkers, Lamberley, we drove through the Sussex clay of a long, winding lane, and finally reached the isolated and ancient farmhouse in which Ferguson dwelt. It was a large, straggling building, very old in the center, very new at the wings, with towering Tudor chimneys and lichen-spotted, high-pitched roof of portion slabs. The doorsteps were worn into curves, and the ancient tiles which lined the porch were marked with the rebus of a cheese and a man after the original builder. Within the ceilings were corrugated with heavy oaken beams, and the uneven floors sagged into sharp curves. An odor of age and decay pervaded the whole crumbling building. There was one very large central room into which Ferguson led us. Here, into huge old-fashioned fireplace with an iron screen behind it dated 1670, there blazed and spluttered a splendid log fire. The room, as I gazed round, was a most singular mixture of dates and of places, the half-paneled walls may well have belonged to the original Yeoman farmer of the 17th century. They were ornamented, however, on the lower part, by a line of well-chosen modern watercolors, while above, where yellow plaster took the place of oak, there was hung a fine collection of South American utensils and weapons, which had been brought, no doubt, by the Peruvian lady upstairs. 
Holmes rose with that quick curiosity which sprang from his eager mind and examined them with some care. He returned with his eyes full of thought. Hello, he cried. Hello. A spaniel had lain in a basket in the corner. It came slowly forward toward its master, walking with difficulty. Its hind legs moved irregularly, and its tail was on the ground. It licked Ferguson's hand. What is it, Mr. Holmes? The dog. What's the matter with it? That's what's puzzled the vet. A sort of paralysis. Spinal meningitis, he thought. But it's passing. He'll be all right soon, won't you, Carlo? A shiver of assent passed through the drooping tail. The dog's mournful eyes passed from one of us to the other. He knew that we were discussing his case. Did it come on suddenly? In a single night? How long ago? Uh, it may have been four months ago. Very remarkable. Very suggestive. What do you see in it, Mr. Holmes? A confirmation of what I already thought. For God's sake, what do you think, Mr. Holmes? It may be a mere intellectual puzzle to you, but it's life and death to me. My wife, a would-be murderer. My child in constant danger. Don't play with me, Mr. Holmes. It is too terribly serious. The big rugby three-quarter was trembling all over. Holmes put his hand soothingly upon his arm. I fear that there is pain for you, Mr. Ferguson, whatever the solution may be, said he. I would spare you all I can. I cannot say more for the instant, but before I leave this house, I hope I may have something definite. Please, God, you may. If you will excuse me, gentlemen, I will go up to my wife's room and see if there has been any change. He was away some minutes, during which Mr. Holmes resumed his examination of the curiosities upon the wall. When our host returned, it was clear from his downcast face that he had made no progress. He brought with him a tall, slim, brown-faced girl. The tea is ready, Dolores, said Ferguson. See that your mistress has everything she can wish. But she very ill, cried the girl, looking with indignant eyes at her master. She no ask for food. She very ill. She need doctor. I frightened stay alone with her without doctor. Ferguson looked at me with a question in his eyes. I should be so glad if I could be of use. Would your mistress see Dr. Watson? I take him. I no ask leave. She needs doctor. Then I'll come with you at once. I followed the girl, who was quivering with strong emotion, up the staircase and down an ancient corridor. At the end was an iron-clamped and massive door. It struck me as I looked at it that if Ferguson tried to force his way to his wife, he would find it no easy matter. The girl drew a key from her pocket, and the heavy oaken planks creaked upon their old hinges. I passed in, and she swiftly followed, 
fastening the door behind her. On the bed, a woman was lying who was clearly in a high fever. She was only half conscious, but as I entered, she raised a pair of frightened but beautiful eyes and glared at me in apprehension. Seeing a stranger, she appeared to be relieved and sank back with a sigh upon the pillow. I stepped up to her with a few reassuring words, and she lay still while I took her pulse and temperature. Both were high, and yet my impression was that the condition was rather that of mental and nervous excitement than of any actual seizure. She lie like that one day, two day. I afraid she die, said the girl. The woman turned her flushed and handsome face towards me. Where is my husband? He is below and would wish to see me. I will not see him. I will not see him. Then she seemed to wander off into delirium. A fiend! A fiend! Oh, what shall I do with this devil? Can I help you in any way? No! No one can help. It is finished. All is destroyed. Do what I will. All is destroyed. The woman must have some strange delusion. I could not see honest Bob Ferguson in the character of fiend or devil. Madam, I said, your husband loves you dearly. He is deeply grieved at this happening. Again, she turned on me those glorious eyes. He loves me, yes. But do I not love him? Do I not love him even to sacrifice myself rather than break his dear heart? That is how I love him. And yet he could think of me. He could speak of me so. He is full of grief, but he cannot understand. No, he cannot understand, but he should trust. Will you not see him? I suggested. No, no, I cannot forget those terrible words, nor the look upon his face. I will not see him. Go now. You can do nothing for me. Tell him only one thing. I want my child. I have a right to my child. That is the only message I can send him. She turned her face to the wall and would say no more. I returned to the room downstairs where Ferguson and Holmes still sat by the fire. Ferguson listened moodily to my account of the interview. How can I send her the child? He said. How do I know what strange impulse might come upon her? How can I ever forget how she rose from beside it with its blood upon her lips? He shuddered at the recollection. The child is safe with Mrs. Mason, and there she must remain. A smart maid, the only modern thing which we had seen in the house, had brought in some tea. As she was serving it, the door opened, and a youth entered the room. He was a remarkable lad, pale-faced and fair-haired, with an excitable light blue eyes 
which blazed into a sudden flame of emotion and joy as they rested upon his father. He rushed forward and threw his arms round his neck with the abandon of a loving girl. Oh, Daddy, he cried. I did not know that you were due yet. I should have been here to meet you. Oh, I'm so glad to see you. Ferguson gently disengaged himself from the embrace with some little show of embarrassment. Dear old chap, said he, patting the flaxen head with a very tender hand. I came early because my friends, Mr. Holmes and Dr. Watson here, have been persuaded to come down and spend an evening with us. Is that Mr. Holmes the detective? Yes. The youth looked at us with a very penetrating and, as it seemed to me, unfriendly gaze. What about your other child, Mr. Ferguson? asked Holmes. Might we make the acquaintance of the baby? Ask Mr. Mason to bring baby down, said Ferguson. The boy went off with a curious, shambling gait which told my surgical eyes that he was suffering from a weak spine. Presently, he returned, and behind him came a tall, gaunt woman, bearing in her arms a very beautiful child, dark-eyed, golden-haired, a wonderful mixture of the Saxon and the Latin. Ferguson was evidently devoted to it, for he took it into his arms and fondled it most tenderly. Fancy anyone having the heart to hurt him, he muttered, as he glanced down at the small, angry red pucker upon the cherub throat. It was at this moment that I chanced to glance at Holmes, and saw a most singular intentness in his expression. His face was as set as if it had been carved out of an old ivory, and his eyes, which had glanced for a moment at the father and child, were now fixed with eager curiosity upon something at the other side of the room. Following his gaze, I could only guess that he was looking out through the window at the melancholy dripping garden. It is true that a shutter had half-closed outside and obstructed the view, but nonetheless, it was certainly at the window that Holmes was fixing his concentrated attention. Then he smiled, and his eyes came back to the baby. On its chubby neck, there was the small puckered mark. Without speaking, Holmes examined it with care. Finally, he shook one of the dimpled fists, which waved in front of him. Goodbye, little man. You have made a strange start in life. Nurse, I should wish to have a word with you in private. He took her aside and spoke earnestly for a few minutes. I only heard the last words, which were, Your anxiety will soon, I hope, be set at rest. The woman, who seemed to be a sour, silent kind of creature, withdrew with the child. What is Mrs. Mason like? asked Holmes. Mm, not very prepossessing externally, as you can see, but a heart of gold and devoted to the child. Do you like her, Jack? Holmes turned suddenly upon the boy. 
His expressive mobile face shadowed over, and he shook his head. Jackie has very strong likes and dislikes, said Ferguson, putting his arm around the boy. Luckily, I am one of his likes. The boy cooed and nestled upon his father's breast. Ferguson gently disengaged him. Run away, little Jackie, said he, and he watched his son with loving eyes until he disappeared. Now, Mr. Holmes, he continued, when the boy was gone, I really feel that I've brought you on a fool's errand, for what can you possibly do save give me your sympathy? It must be an exceedingly delicate and complex affair from your point of view. It is certainly delicate, said my friend with an amused smile. But I have not been struck up to now with its complexity. It has been a case for intellectual deduction. But when this original intellectual deduction is confirmed point by point by quite a number of independent incidents, then the subjective becomes objective, and we can say confidently that we have reached our goal. I had, in fact, reached it before we left Baker Street, and the rest has merely been observation and confirmation. Ferguson put his big hand to his furrowed forehead. For heaven's sake, Holmes, he said hoarsely, if you can see the truth in this matter, do not keep me in suspense. How do I stand? What shall I do? I care nothing as to how you have found your facts, as long as you have really got them. Certainly, I owe you an explanation, and you shall have it. But you will permit me to handle the matter in my own way? Is the lady capable of seeing us, Watson? She is ill, but she is quite rational. Very good. It is only in her presence that we can clear the matter up. Let us go up to her. She will not see me, cried Ferguson. Oh, yes, she will, said Holmes. He scribbled a few lines upon a sheet of paper. You at least have the entree, Watson. Will you have the goodness to give the lady this note? I ascended and handed the note to Dolores, who cautiously opened the door. A minute later, I heard a cry from within, a cry in which joy and surprise seemed to be blended. Dolores looked out. She will see them. She will listen, said she. At my summons, Ferguson and Holmes came up. As we entered the room, Ferguson took a step or two towards his wife, who had raised herself in the bed, but she held out her hand to repulse him. He sank into an armchair, while Holmes seated himself beside him, after bowing to the lady, who looked at him with wide-eyed amazement. "'I think we can dispense with Dolores,' said Holmes. Oh, very well, madame. If you would rather she stayed, I can see no objection. Now, Mr. Ferguson, I'm a busy man with many calls, and my methods have to be short and direct. The swiftest surgery is the least painful. Let me first say what will ease your mind. Your wife, 
is a very good, very loving, and a very ill-used woman. Ferguson sat up with a cry of joy. Prove that, Mr. Holmes, and I am your debtor forever. I will do so, but in doing so, I must wound you deeply in another direction. I care nothing as long as you clear my wife. Everything on earth is insignificant compared to that. Let me tell you then the train of reasoning which passed through my mind in Baker Street. The idea of a vampire was to me absurd. Such things do not happen in criminal practice in England. And yet, your observation was precise. You had seen the lady rise from beside the child's cot with the blood upon her lips. I did. Did it not occur to you that a bleeding wound may be sucked from some other purpose than to draw the blood from it? Was there not a queen in English history who sucked such a wound to draw poison from it? Poison? A South American household. My instinct felt the presence of those weapons upon the wall before my eyes ever saw them. It might have been other poison, but that was what occurred to me. When I saw the little empty quiver beside the small bird bow, it was just what I expected to see. If the child were pricked with one of those arrows dipped in curar or some other devilish drug, it would mean death if the venom were not sucked out. And the dog. If one were to use such a poison, would one not try it first in order to see that it had not lost its power? I did not foresee the dog, but at least I understood him and fitted it into my reconstruction. Now do you understand? Your wife feared such an attack. She saw it made and saved the child's life and yet she shrank from telling you all the truth, for you knew how you loved the boy, and feared lest it break your heart. Jackie? I watched him as you fondled the child just now. His face was clearly reflected in the glass of the window, where the shutter formed a background. I saw such jealousy, such cruel hatred, as I have seldom seen in a human face. My Jackie! You have to face it, Mr. Ferguson. It is the more painful, because it is a distorted love. A maniacal, exaggerated love for you, and possibly for his dead mother, which had prompted his action. His very soul is consumed with hatred for this splendid child, whose health and beauty are a contrast to his own weakness. Good God! It's incredible! Have I spoken the truth, madame? The lady was sobbing, with her face buried in her pillows. Now she turned to her husband. How could I tell you, Bob? I felt the blow it would be to you. It was better that I should wait, and that it should come from some other lips than mine. When this gentleman, who seems to have powers of magic, wrote that he knew all, I was glad. I think a year at sea would be my prescription for Master Jackie, said Holmes, rising from his chair. 
Only one thing is still clouded, madame. We can quite understand your attacks upon Master Jackie. There is a limit to a mother's patience. But how did you dare to leave the child these last two days? I had told Mrs. Mason. She knew. Exactly. So I imagined. Ferguson was standing by the bed, choking, his hands outstretched and quivering. This, I fancy, is a time for our exit, Watson, said Holmes in a whisper. If you will take one elbow of the two faithful Dolores, I will take the other. There now, he added as he closed the door behind him. I think we may leave them to settle the rest among themselves. I have only one further note of this case. It is the letter which Holmes wrote in the final answer to that which the narrative begins. It ran thus. Baker Street, November 21st, Re Vampires. Sir, referring to your letter of the 19th, I beg to state that I have looked into the inquiry of your client, Mr. Robert Ferguson, of Ferguson and Muirhead, tea brokers of Mincing Lane, and that the matter has been brought to a satisfactory conclusion. With thanks for your recommendation, I am, sir, faithfully yours, Sherlock Holmes. End of part two of The Adventure of the Sussex Vampire by... Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Aha! So you're telling me it wasn't vampires that sucked the blood of this baby child, but in fact, a loving, affectionate, caring mother dealing a life-saving piercing of a baby's neck to suck poison out of its bloodstream? What a relief! Or is it? Let me present to you a few concerning questions that I have that uh, we need to consider before we conclude this case. Number one, do vampires still exist? Because Holmes, as you will recall, all he says is, I am not familiar with vampires conducting this type of criminal activity. Which, that's nice. Vampires are a little bit humane in the fact that they don't suck the blood out of babies willy-nilly. Well, that's very kind of them. But it also means that Sherlock was felt like he was like rehearsing a line for an interview in front of the press. And they're like, Mr. Holmes, do you believe that vampires are still rampant in Europe? And then Holmes is like, well, I just don't think that they're capable or it's not normal of them to conduct this type of criminal activity. Notice what he didn't say. He did not say that vampires do not exist. He said they do not suck blood from babies, which I'm guessing most of you are not babies and can comprehend what I'm saying, which means your proverbial neck is still open to the feral fang of a vampire in the near future. So, not a very comforting thought, but let us continue. Second question. Why is there 
poison in a quiver just chilling out for easy access by baby and by child. I get it. It's a really cool souvenir from Peru. Cool. Show it off to your guests. All you've got to say about when they come to the bow and arrow is, oh, by the way, these were actually dipped in poison and were used to kill said assailants. Or, better yet, you could take out a post-it note, label an empty poison quiver as poison quiver, and say, for obvious reasons, because of Jack and the baby, we decided not to fill this quiver with the poison that came with it because we don't want them to actually kill themselves. You know, the guests would understand and be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But no, they have to be the authentic parents. Now, before we call CDC or CPS or whatever they're called, we need to give them the benefit of the doubt, okay? These parents may be, you know, very thoughtful and very protective of their kids. So this could very well be a sign of self-defense. And when a burglar comes into their house, all one has to do is dip an arrow in poison and fire it with a bow at said assailant and incapacitate him indefinitely. Which, you know, could be a logical explanation um, I don't know what their policy on guns were back then, but even in modern-day America, if one uses a loaded gun, which is the only thing that makes sense in self-defense, one puts it out of access of small arms and hands, or, and, locks it in a safe for easy access and use if a burglar should enter one's home. Not just put it on display and say, oops, I forgot it's loaded right after a child shoots themselves with it, you know? So you can't have oopsie moments in these situations, and they do. So uh, that's the other concerning point, but it follows up with my final and third incredibly concerning point. What is the true mental powers and capacities of Jack Ferguson? Because this little boy not only knew that there was poison that existed for his easy access, he had the wherewithal to test its potency on the dog before administering it to the baby. That communicates to me a sign of higher level intelligence than a child should normally possess at Jack Ferguson's age. That's like evil genius level intelligence. So Sherlock's prescription that all Jack needs is a good year at sea uh, is not a solution that I would care to entertain because I fear that if Jack went off on a year at sea, he'd turn into a pirate and be pillaging and plundering and six months in have the entire crew on his side. So I don't think 
Pirate Jack is a good moniker that one should ever bestow upon this child. This child needs mental help, psychological help. That's all he needs. Which brings us to our final point. Even though I said the last point was our final point. Which brings us to our final point. Why, on God's green earth, did the mother not report to the father that Jack tried to poison the baby? She was like, her defense was, oh, I didn't want to injure the father's love for his child. How sweet, mother. But in fact, your stepson is being groomed for murder right under your very eyes. And uh, you said nothing about this because you didn't want to injure the love of the father to his child. <sighs> hmm. Let me think about this. The life of my baby... The love of the father to Jack. The life of my baby. The love of my father to Jack. That's like saying, would I like to hack off my arm or simply prick it with a needle? Simply prick it with a needle is fine with me. So, I, I don't know what to say. Happy Mother's Day, everyone, belated. But, you know, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. But quite honestly, I'm glad this case is over, because that was tough to read. But as they say in showbiz, blessedly, that's all he wrote for now. <laughs> <laughs>